and welcome to Big Gay Energy. I'm Bree. I'm Theora. And I'm Caitlin. Come along with us while we dive into the fun and nuances of queer media. Representation matters, and we're here to talk about it. Hello, everybody. We are beyond thrilled to have today's guest with us. They are the co-creator, writer, director, producer of the very important television series, A League of Their Own. This is Will Graham. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, my gosh. Hi, guys. It's so nice to be here. It is so amazing to have you here. We've been trying to get this for a while. We're so excited to talk to you. <laughs> oh, it's it's a total pleasure. And yeah, um, I think some fans of your uh, podcast reached out to me on Twitter and was, were like, you should really do this. And I was like, great. I will. I will follow your command. <laughs> <laughs> uh, listening to the fans. Now that's a sh- that's a good showrunner. Yeah, well, we love our fans. Yes, we do. I say, as we now have some. Um, (laughs) Anyway, we've been talking to a crew of various TV shows and just basically introducing our audience to different jobs behind the scenes. Now, you have probably one of the biggest jobs. What does a co-creator and showrunner do? Um, Well, that's a really good question. It's... uh, different depending on the show. Um, But I think, you know, what being a showrunner means is um, that sort of the buck stops with you creatively when it comes to all the creative elements of the show, whether it's the scripts or the casting or hiring directors or ultimately kind of what gets delivered um, in the edits. And then also, you know, very often that person, but not always, that person's also the person who uh, who created the show. So in the case of me and Abby with League and also Dester F, who was really integrally involved in the in, um, entire process, it sort of meant seeing it through, you know, it's that like insane job where you have to have the crazy creative vision. Um, and then you have to solve like 1 million tiny problems <laughs> uh, on the way to actually making it that like, it's just, um insane the number of of things that there are yeah it sounds like stuff i mean it seems like things would just pop up left and right that you have to kind of put out fires and yeah i've always loved that combination you know i think if i just loved the sort of creative imagining part like i'd be very tempted to write novels or something where you don't have to deal with the rest of the world but i kind of love the intersection of you know, you have this crazy idea and then it's you and a couple of people sitting alone in a room and then suddenly you're on a baseball field and it starts raining halfway <laughs> through the day and everyone is like, oh God, what are we doing with the rest of the day? What does this mean about the schedule? What are, you know, the wardrobe is wet now. We have to, you know, and it's, um, I guess that intersection of, of sort of having ideas that you really want to share with people and then kind of pulling together this this sort of um, incredible and very large group of talented people to make it happen. It's amazing. I can't even imagine the hours spent just getting everything right. So, um, Well, I don't know if you always get everything right. You know, sometimes like your idea of right changes or is even like bettered 
by um, something that happens that you didn't imagine or an idea that an actor has or or something else that happens in the unfolding of the scene. So ultimately what you're seeing on screen is really um, the work of a, an, an enormous team. Is there anything that was supposed to happen but changed for the better? Oh gosh, yes. I mean, so many things. Um, uh, you know, I think like the most obvious example for us is we had a lot of actors who are really skilled improvisers and that starts with Abby, but it's also definitely true of Darcy and Bemi Soleil Gumelo, who plays Clance, um, who's also a writer on the show, is like one of the funniest improvisers that I've ever worked with and is also like British. So she's doing it, she's improvising in an American accent, <laughs> uh, which um, is insane, you know. Um, but then like, you know, the the baseball sequences are another great example where we have these incredible real players that we're working with. Justine Siegel, who's our coordinator for baseball, was the first woman um, to ever coach on a major league staff and her jerseys in Cooperstown. And, you know, um, the way that that unfolds and her perspective and the real players who were playing the baseball players, um, you know, brings uh, so much to it. But also there's something incredibly fun and i think this mostly comes through when i'm directing where you're like okay something happened in the day suddenly we have two hours to get this scene we were supposed to have five hours for so what's the like really beautiful idea that captures everything that i need to capture that's maybe like a little simpler and more elegant um than than what i had in mind all right let's just push forward here uh so do you pitch the show and then give up the rights to your production company or network? Like, how does that work if they cancel a show? Just like curious about like the background of this stuff, like not necessarily for a certain show, just, I mean, in general, since you, we've been having have a lot a of like a little bit of experience, just a bit. And right? we like did an episode about this kind of stuff uh, from all the shows that got canceled in 2022. Yeah. So uh, it really depends on the show, um, but in the case of League, Sony has the rights um, to the movie. Uh, so they have the rights to the show. They're the studio. Amazon, which is the network, distributes it, right? So Sony retains the rights no matter what because they have what's called the underlying material, which in this case um, is the movie. Speaking of the movie, yeah, what was the process for adapting it into a series and getting it up all over the place? Uh, I think um, you know we we love the movie and we uh, grew up on the movie, and I think every person involved in the show has a slightly different relationship to it. For me, I sort of found it as like a little queer kid uh, who wasn't surrounded by queer content and was playing a lot of little league baseball, which my dad um made me do is probably a little bit too strong of a way of saying it but like strongly encouraged me uh to do and i sort of felt undercover as like a boy on the team and i was like you know i didn't have any words to describe what i was feeling but like oh you know kind of felt like oh no i'm gonna get found out and and there was something about the movie that kind of just gave you the feeling of like oh it's okay to be on the field even if you don't look like or or sound like or act like the 
what people expect to find on the field. Um, and then a few years ago, I started looking into uh, the real history behind it. And, you know, sort of, I think, had the feeling that there was probably a really big and important chapter of queer history uh, underneath it. Um, and then the more I looked, the more you find. And, and you know, the, the most obvious thing was uh, the stories of African-American women who weren't allowed to play in the league, but players like Connie Morgan, Tony Stone, Mimi Johnson, and, you know, there are dozens of others who maybe didn't get as far who went on to play professionally in the Negro Leagues. And, you know, even Penny Marshall, I think, has said publicly, and she certainly said to me and Abby, like, oh, that's a story that I really wish that I'd gotten to tell. Um, and then beyond that, there were um, these stories of uh, queer women who sort of had to make themselves look like something they weren't or give up certain parts of themselves in order to get that opportunity. But at the same time, the way that Darcy Carden's character says in the pilot, like they kind of got to rob the bank. Um, they got these opportunities uh, to make money and have a team and um, become a different version of themselves and in some cases get independence from uh, a lot of the structures that were um, were sort of common for women at the time. Um, and And so, you know, it was incredible just personally an incredible life experience kind of growing into all of that research and getting to know a lot of the people um, involved and pretty early on in the process abby and i already knew each other a little bit in new york and i was kind of talking to her about what i was thinking about doing and she got excited about it and we started talking about it together and um and it really you know came from the both of us from the start that's great. Um, our third host for Big Gay Energy grew up with A League of Their Own and loved it. And she was telling us about this show before so early on. She was so excited. Um, she couldn't be here today, but I just want you to know how much this show has meant to her as well. Aww. Because, I mean, obviously it's touched so many people, but uh, to see her get so excited about this show... It, it it made it even better for us. So, what do you thank think got for... her excited about it? Okay. Um. Anyway, <laughs> I think that she she and I both grew up playing sports and being queer and playing sports. Yeah. Um. And I know that she and I had a lot of similar experiences where we felt like we had to kind of be undercover in some ways, especially me considering where I'm from. But uh, I know that it meant a lot to her just to see something from, that meant so much to her as, as uh, growing up as a kid, somewhere that she could go and just see this warm kind of welcoming special movie and then see something that was even more representative on TV at a time when we were feeling like, daggum, all of our shows are getting canceled. What's going on? And then the show comes along that just shows, you know, so many aspects of what we were looking for that I think she just couldn't, um, couldn't be more excited about it. It's, I think Aww. it's really taken a place as her, fa as one of her favorites. 
well, thank you, thank you, and thank her for that. And I think that's a lot of what you know. I think again, Abby would have a slightly different perspective, and so would Desta, and that's sort of the soul of the show in a lot of ways. For me, I think um, what's been incredible about it is something really similar. Um, sort of putting yourself back in the story and finding yourself in stories that feel familiar and League of Their Own is a movie that we sort of think of as like a, a classic with a lot of Americana in it, um, right? Which it really is. And then the fact that that story really in reality centers um, queer women and queer people and uh, queer people of color um, is, uh, it, it makes you think about yourself a little differently, you know, and, and the idea that we don't live in a world that's perfect for us now. I mean, that's an understatement on so many levels, but I think it's an act of heroism as queer people to, to find joy in that world and to make lives that are full of meaning and fall in love with the people that you want to fall in love with. And just the idea that, you know, our history, while there's a lot of tragedy in it, isn't only tragic and that people have always been fighting that fight and found a way to have really joyful lives despite the adversity. Um, yeah, to me that, you know, personally has really meant a lot. That whole thing could just be a quote. I would stick around for the end of that quote. Thank you. Technically, <laughs> <laughs> anything you say is a quote, Bree. That is true. Right. I could say anything. No, like that pretty much summed up everything that I felt in a, and I feel like in a, in an even better way than I could think it. So yeah, absolutely. Um, but sp speaking of it being awesome since its release, like their own has been recognized by the human rights campaign. Uh, several cast and crew members have been nominated for awards. What do you think sets a league of their own apart from other queer shows boy i don't i don't know i mean first of all i um i i like celebrate the queer narratives in the show and then also this is a show that hopefully speaks to all kinds of people and people can find themselves in in the same way you know camille ninjani said it really well uh, where he was like, I've been as ever since I was a kid watching stories that center straight white men and not even thinking about it, you know, just sort of putting myself in the story. So I think in a lot of ways, this show, you know, there's parts of it that are a love letter to queer people. There's also parts of it that are an invitation to non-queer people to just step into our shoes and our world and enjoy this story that really um, is universal. Uh, I think um, in terms of what makes the show... Uh, stand stand out um I, I guess i would say i think we're more standing on the shoulders of um other queer shows uh and trying to build on some of uh what they've done but also really standing on the shoulders of um the real stories um and the real women who had those experiences and uh played played ball and everything else for me the thing that makes it different or or special just from shows in general is that sense of joy um underneath it and even the really hard parts you know for this is a spoiler for anyone who hasn't watched the show but the bar raid things like that which came from you know real stories of people that we um are friends with 
uh, and and uh, talk to um, that that it's told through a lens that at the end of the day it's worth it to still live as yourself and play the sport that you love but but not give up the parts of yourself that society doesn't um, necessarily support so I, I would say it's like the joy um, to me that really um, is the thing that I love the most in the show sort of joy without looking away from the hard things I lost my train of thought I'm so sorry <laughs> Okay. Happens to me constantly. It's you the talk ADHD so well. in us. <laughs> I remember now. So, not only like a League of Their Own doesn't just allow you to like see yourself because of so many diverse storylines. I feel like it allows people to learn more about others and how different experiences can be, especially when you compare um, Carson and max because like two different both want the same goal but it's, it's an interesting juxtaposition yeah yes and yeah. i think that's just incredible yeah it's uh you know we talked about the sort of pilot which is the inciting incident for the show sort of being a moment where a door opens for one person and it doesn't open for another person just based on their race and the social construct around that and and what that meant at the time. And that's very much um, based on real events. The the scene where Max and Clance go to try out for the league um, in the pilot is, is very close to what happened to Mamie Johnson and her friend Rita when she uh, tried to um, try out for the league. And Mamie looking back on um her that sort of chapter in her story was like well when i played pro ball i didn't have to wear a skirt <laughs> and um there was something kind of badass in that knowing that we didn't want to minimize the effect of that but we also wanted to um to position that scene and that event as not defining for max um and she's gonna find her own door and her own world, even if she has to make it herself, um, which I think, you know, it was heavily influenced by Mamie, Connie, and Tony's story, heavily influenced by a lot of our, our writers. And ultimately, Max's story is about, you know, the show's about teams, um, different kinds of teams, right? There's a team that you play with on the field. There's also a team that kind of gets you to the field, right? A family or a chosen family um friends um and so max's story i think we took as an opportunity to sort of explore um both sides of of that but it is something that i think people it was one of the biggest sort of structural i guess risks in the show like there hasn't really been a show that is structured in exactly that uh way before with these sort of parallel stories that um intersect and these kind of side by side um worlds and and that was it was an incredible challenge and an incredible privilege you completely nailed it <laughs> yeah <laughs> Thank you. well i i think the experience of making something and i'm guessing you guys and a lot of your audience are probably creative people too so you know the feeling of 
when you've made something and I see like every tattered edge and every, I'm like, oh, that happened because of that. And oh, that moment. And I don't know if we got that right, but it's wonderful, A, when other people don't see that and when they bring themselves to the show and make it mean something to them. Like that's something that ultimately doesn't come from us. It's like we build a house and we let people into it and people decide whether they want to live in the house. Um, and, uh, and it's just been incredible watching how much how much the audience and the fans of the show have sort of let the show into their lives. Um, I've never had an experience like that before. Well, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm sitting on the couch eating some chips, so I'm going to be here for a while in the house. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really glad. Feel free to tell us how the house is working for you. It's, it's, it's wonderful. It's cozy. Oh. We'll put it that way. I'm so glad. Yeah, it's it's such a strange feeling, you know, when you think it was really four years, four and a half, four years, something like that, of of living with these histories and exploring the ideas and working with Abby and working with other writers and everything. And then there's sort of one day where you're like, okay, here it is. And, and then you're like, thing, yeah, that's been inside your head for so long is suddenly like uh, it, it belongs to other people. And it's really wonderful, um, that experience. It's insane how long like these shows take to get developed and actually put out there. And I don't think anybody realizes that. So it was like four and a half years, you said. Yeah. And, and in fairness, they don't all take um, that long. Uh, this one went through a bunch of twists and turns and, and, and different chapters along the way. And it still is going through different twists and turns and chapters. You know, it was, it was never going to be easy, um, because of the movie, because of the stories, because of the complexity of what we're trying to do. So I've, I've gotten to a place where, um, to like quote the Tom Hanks line from, uh, the movie, like, I, I just embrace the hard um, and like the hard is what makes it great. Um, and, uh, and, and that's been, you know, a part of uh, a part of the journey the whole way along, but also I, I wouldn't change it. Meaning, um, you know, the great thing about that development process was that by the time we finally showed up on set, um, we really knew what we wanted to do. That's great. Um, you talked about talking to the actual people and hearing their stories. Why is it so important to accurately tell their stories of just queer people and people of color in general from the 1940s? Um, that's a great question. I think, uh, you know, on the one hand, just like for me personally, I would say those people and Maybelle Blair is obviously someone who's talked publicly and came out around our premiere at the age of 95, but there's lots of others too. They've really come to mean something to me and to all of us. So you wanna, you want them to see themselves in the show. And at the same time, and I think this happens with a lot of shows that represent um, historically marginalized group, there's the additional pressure of um, 
we don't get a lot of shots. <laughs> you know, TV does, we don't have 27 different uh, lesbian cop shows on on TV or... or uh, don't wish! That's paradise! <laughs> don't! <laughs> someday, you guys. Don't threaten me uh, with a good time, Will. <laughs> <laughs> that is so funny. I, uh, so, so I think, you know, what happens in the writer's room in the making process is when people from those groups are involved, you feel the dual pressures of, of wanting to really represent your um, experience and be authentic. And, um, and then knowing that like, um, you, you're incredibly lucky to uh, get to do it at all. And you really want to make something um, out of that opportunity. And I would say, like telling telling these stories now, you know, when I grew up, which I graduated from college in 2003, like we didn't have, there was like nothing about queer people in the like sex ed book. There was no like history unit that focused on uh, queer history. Obviously like um, people of color, black people, especially uh, black women, like large parts of that history, including a lot of what happened in the factories in World War II, have either been lost or edited out or deemed to not be as important. So getting to tell some of those stories in a way that people can see themselves in it, and it's joyful and fun and a comedy. And at the same time, it's maybe giving them a story that they didn't have before. I think that's part of what we felt like we were getting to do um, with the show. You're actually keeping their stories alive and making sure people don't forget them. Yeah, I mean, that that is the hope. And, and I love, um, you guys probably know this, but like, I love the history and the real anecdotes that we find along the way. And it's been so fun, even on social media, just to watch people like, oh, start to like order some of those books and learn a little more about the history underneath it. You don't have to, you don't have to know any of that to enjoy the show. The show is basically like a good time in a lot of it ways. It is. It definitely <laughs> is. It's such a great show. It's just, um, the most of the spirit of it is pretty fun. Um, I think the, the sort of what I think is important about the show hopefully speaks with a little bit of a quieter voice where it's not saying like, this is important. You should care about this, but it's just bringing you into that, that world. It's very interesting because you do get like, this is important, not like directly, but especially with there being so much comedy, the balance to, for you to be able to do that was just insane. And also it being a comedy in itself is amazing because we don't have enough comedies. Yeah, like, I mean, to totally. We, we don't. And, um, you know, that that's something that's so amazing about the movie, uh, which is in some ways, I think, where the tone of the show sort of it's not that it's the same, but it sort of it definitely grew from there. Right. The, the mm -hmm. movie is. It's set in the middle of World War II, historically uh, a dark time, <laughs> not not often the place for the um, funniest comedies. Uh, and it's also just, um, wow, what was that? <laughs> no idea. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Sounds like there's like a tiger on the call. Yeah. Um, uh, so... So, <laughs> uh, yeah, 
the movie set in World War II, and um, it has. Wait, is that Sophie? Comedic, the sort of balance of the comedy and drama, and yeah. um, the 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 movie has that. You can sort of imagine the like Oscar bait version of the movie. That's oh, a little yeah. more like capital I important. And instead, mm-hmm. like Penny told the story in this beautifully human, really funny way with these iconic and really flawed characters. Um, and and I think that's part of what has made the movie so long lasting um, is, uh, is that sort of comedic approach. But I also definitely feel like, and, and, and again, Abby or Dester, any of the other writers may put it differently. I feel like I discover emotion in comedy and I discover comedy in some of my most emotional moments. And it was really something that in developing the show, Abby and I looked at each other and we were like, well, we don't want to, um, sometimes I think when you have a show that has a balance of both, you sort of, you wind up being in the middle. Um, you know, it's like the comedy's not going to be too absurd and the emotional stakes won't be too heavy. Uh, we were kind of like, we're instead just going to really go for it on both sides. <laughs> oh, you did. And, yeah. uh, and see what happens, you know? No. A plus. Um, but it was also a place, um, just to say it, that uh, you don't always in television now get to make a pilot for the show. Um Mm-hmm. And the fact that we got to make a pilot and we got to see the tone uh, and we were like, oh, okay. Uh, and we could kind of adjust it a few degrees uh, and, and go from there. I think that gave us the confidence to really go for it. So you did start out with a pilot, not like a full season order. No. Yeah, we started okay. um, with a pilot. We actually wrote a, uh, you know, in terms of what those four years were, we originally conceived the show as a half hour we wrote a season of the half hour show. Um, and then uh, I think Amazon was like, well, we're never going to be able to, to afford this show as a half hour. It should be an hour. And we were like, okay, great. Um, maybe you could have told us that beforehand. Uh, and then we made a pilot for the hour version and then wrote the hour version. So that's what I mean where it's like, we really got to live with the characters and refine them in a couple different um, formats. Uh, and a couple different sort of drafts in a way that you don't always get to do on TV. But also, it's fun for fans of the show to know that there's another version of season one out there somewhere saved on people's computers. <laughs> Ooh, don't invite hackers. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. I shouldn't invite hackers. Don't be trying to get that. <laughs> Why is an well, hour cheaper than a half hour? That was my uh, question. <laughs> yeah, no. So, I mean, the economics of hour-long television are different, um, partly because you can syndicate them more and partly because uh. hours are basically where sort of the big shows tend to um, go. Not not all the time, but so hours in general just are sort of made at a higher cost per minute, if that makes sense. Gotcha. gotcha. Than half hours usually, but I, I don't, I mean, the real answer is like, I'm not sure. That's just what happened. We just got more and I'm not complaining. Yeah, don't don't complain, Caitlin. I wasn't complaining. <laughs> I was curious. There's a huge difference. Yes. Okay, Haley. There is a huge difference. <laughs> so I have a question. Um, when you guys cast Rosie O'Donnell, that was such a freaking wonderful homage. 
to the movie that and was that something that you guys like wanted to do from the beginning and is there a possibility for more cameos uh there's certainly if there um, are future seasons there certainly is a possibility for more cameos and the way that the rosy thing came about um was was really wonderful i mean i think we we originally sort of set out saying well maybe we'll do kind of more direct links with the movie at some point but at first we really want the show to um stand on its own so we were sort of developing the arc of the season and uh abby knew rosie uh i can't completely remember how but they uh gotten to know each other and abby was like i was thinking maybe i would ask her come to come to the writer's room and talk to the writers um and we were excited and nervous and all the things because i think at that point really you know no one really knew what we were doing and we came in and we sort of uh rosie came in and we pitched um sort of the rough season and she was like i like it you know here's what i think and then she was like um and you know something that i could do is like in this gay bar maybe there's a person like this uh that and she sort of pitched us a little bit like what what she wanted to do and we were like yeah that that sounds great um so like every other part of the show that was a real a real collaboration and it was such a joy you know she was in my the episode that i wrote and directed and um was just like such in that episode there was a lot of moments where i really like pinched myself about what we were getting to do and that was definitely one of them i can imagine i can imagine um and if you couldn't hear brie because of her mic she said i can imagine (laughs) (laughs) totally sue me all right (laughs) we'll see um so the next question is from Theora, and I want to make sure to read it for word for word because she wrote this out. Okay. So one of the most incredible episodes in the series, I believe it's six, which is an episode you directed. There seems to be a lot of subtle references to the Wizard of Oz throughout the entire episode. Carson is asked if, asked if she is a friend of Dorothy. Both Carson and Max cross through curtains when entering queer spaces. The golden lighting in Bert's house is like the yellow brick road. Were these choices comparing Dorothy entering Oz to the characters entering a whole new world? Yes. I mean, um, first of all, thank you for that uh, question. You clearly (laughs) watched that episode very closely, which is um, great. She had to, like, just take a moment after that episode. Like, we had to have a phone call because... It took her a while. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's amazing. Um, Again, that she sort of let it... um, means something to her. And yeah, I mean, you know, obviously Wizard of Oz is a huge um, reference and and sort of part of uh, uh, queer storytelling, or there's a lot of um, queer inferences uh, into um, the Wizard of Oz. And then it has the historical reference of like Friends of Dorothy, which like nobody exactly knows if that really came from the Wizard of Oz, but it seems like it must have um, somehow. And um, we, we, early on in the writer's room, talked about using a movie as a parallel um, and, and sort of framing one episode with a movie. And The Wizard of Oz jumped out to me for all the reasons that we're talking about, right? And the idea that, like, um, the answer's inside you all along, as Dorothy says um, in The Wizard of Oz, 
and that you sort of have to travel someplace completely new in order to find yourself. Um, I think were the kind of um, the touchstone thematic pieces that obviously really resonate with what Carson and Max are both going through in the episode in their own specific ways. I'm really glad um, she noticed the curtains. I uh, spent a lot of time um, explaining how, <laughs> why the curtains um, were important. Uh, but at the same time, you know, in basing um, the episode on The Wizard of Oz, we sort of wanted to both celebrate that as a text and a set of references for the time, but then also interrogate it in a way, because obviously, um, the Wizard of Oz is uh, like, you know, is is sort of, uh, uh, well, I guess to just say the cast is entirely white and uh, Clance in the show sees it really differently um, than uh, Carson does or Vi does, right? So, um, and that really came from Bemi Sola Camello who plays uh, Clance who also sort of wrote or sort of spontaneously generated um, Clance's big speech about Dorothy in the writer's room. Um, and so we oh, wanted to really play, play the two sides of, um, of that reference and, and celebrate it and question it at the same time, which I think is very much in keeping with the spirit of the show in general. Well, that definitely is a different color. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love <laughs> how, I mean, again, it's Bemi who came up with it. So, in case it sounds like I'm celebrating a, a line that I wrote, but um, but she's like, she's not even paying them. Like, <laughs> she is just making them go on a magical adventure. Like, to, and it, you know, it kind of equates to her journey in the factory and the extra hours she's having to work supposedly because she's volunteering for the war. And, you know, is Dorothy like, a, a nice person trying to find her way home or is she like a horrible dictator um, is sort of like the, the question behind it. I love Clint so much. That's like Me one too. of the characters that I relate to so much because I will go on those rants <laughs> about yeah. media and I absolutely adore Clance's obsession with comic books. I really do too. And I'll say there's not a lot of things in the show that um, like the show has a lot of layers in the sense of like, you know, the writer would do a pass at something and then I would do a pass and then Abby would do a pass and then we would do punch up. So at the end of the day, you're like, whose idea was this? Or what <laughs> did I write in here? I can't, I can't really remember. Um, but, uh, I put Clance's, um, the story in the pilot about how Clance writes a letter, uh, to Wonder Woman, sort of like, um, ranting at them for what they're doing to her character. And instead they publish, uh, like a four sentence version of the letter. That's just like, great job, um, happened to me when I was a kid, I wrote like a very long critical essay to, and sent it to X-Men. And then oh. they like my name and just printed like a four sentence thing that was like, hey, I really love the issue. Um, and so that was it was a little thing that I put into the character that I'm not as brave or smart or uh, many other things as Clance is. But it, it like it helped me um, relate to her at the start. I think. I love it so oh my much. gosh. It's awful that so... things like that happen. 
Yeah. But yeah. what was your beef with X-Men? <laughs> I, you know, honestly, I can't really remember my specific beef, but what I do remember feeling as an adult, you look back and you're like, yeah, I wrote them probably like a three page treatise and their letters page is like one page long. And, um, you know, they're, they're just probably very nice 20 somethings who are trying to do their job. <laughs> but like what I really felt at that moment in my life was just this real sense of like, how is this okay? <laughs> um, that I think is like, I don't know, the the intensity that people feel about stories and the idea that Clance, you know, can't exactly figure out how to find herself in this world. So she's um, figuring out that through, uh, through living in this imaginary world in her head. It's very much how I felt as like a young queer person where it's like, okay, not really sure how to do any of this. Mm -hmm. Guess I'm going to go in here for a while. Um, and comic books and, and the X-Files and, um, that was me and Buffy. Oh yeah. I mean, Buffy's incredible. And, and it's how, it's what I think about when I make things now too, is like, you're making that experience for people. So it's like, I always kind of ask myself the question, like, where are you taking people? That's like a fun journey or an adventure. And then what are you kind of giving them to take back with them? If that makes sense. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, it's like one of my favorite things about media in general, but, um, speaking of like seeing yourself. We recently spoke to Lee Robinson about how impactful Uncle Bert was with Max's exploration of, of gender expression. How was that whole narrative developed? It's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the real truth is it's a, it's a really good example. <laughs> Sorry. It's a really good example of um, kind of what I was saying before, where like um, people's perspectives and ideas get piled on top of each other. And basically, this is a long-winded way of me saying, I can't exactly remember um, how Uncle Bert first entered the narrative. But uh, one of our writers who's wonderful, Infiniso Dofia, who also wrote on Pachinko and is a playwright, um, when we were first meeting with her, she talked about how she had done a lot of work in her own place on genealogy and sort of family experiences and how they're passed down. And we knew enough about Max to, at that point to know that um, Tony and Edgar, her parents, were going to be a really big part of her story. And um, I think something in that conversation made us feel like, okay, let's spend a minute and really imagine the bigger world um that max comes from and what the story of her family has been as part of the great migration um coming up from the south and how long they've been there and edgar's lived in town longer than tony and and in doing that i think um we uh we started to talk about how you first find queerness and um we knew that for Carson, she was going to start to find it on this team. And we also knew that in Max's story, the sort of role of the team, especially in the, in the sort of first chunk of the season is, is taken by her family, that sort of team that gets you to the field. So we started to talk about like, what are those mirrors that you start to find in your own family that at first, maybe you 
you think, oh, that person's exactly like me. And, um, and in reality, of course they're not because no one's ever a perfect mirror of, of your experience or your own, um, journey with gender or anything else. But we wanted to develop a really positive relationship for, for Max, um, in that sense. And I think, uh, we then started to research um, trans stories from the time. Um, and there are incredible stories there uh, about the factories, about people passing, um, you know, uh, and and again, just that reminder that people have always sort of experienced gender really differently and trans people have always existed and non-binary people have always existed. And yeah, our society and our vocabulary is maybe starting to catch up to that, which is wonderful. Um, but none of this is new uh, on any level. And and then Lee really brought, I mean, it's, it's really hard to overstate, um, you know, we had trans and sort of um, gender non-conforming writers who uh, worked on the story and, and helped shape it. But Lee really brought, and Patrice who plays Gracie, just brought a beautiful depth and soul and seriousness and warmth and, humor to that role. And they also brought this, um, you know, something that we really worked on in the writer's room, but they brought to life in a way that I think was ultimately more powerful um, than powerful for us than we even thought, which is like the sense that they have a really wonderful life, um, despite all the sacrifices and the things that they give up uh, to, to have it. And Desta talks about like how maybe her favorite moment in the show is like where Max wakes up kind of hungover after the party and, you know, Bertie and Gracie are kind of just making fun of her and then have this nice kind of couple moment where they uh, kiss. And that was, you know, something that really came from um, Lee and Patrice. And it's, it's, you know, like I said before, it's all a collaboration um, where you have ideas and then the actors just bring something that ultimately is better. So we were we were so lucky to have them in those roles. And they're amazing. Yeah, they really are. Uh, in the first episode of the show, Greta and Carson write a letter to Charlie. Yeah. Was that seeing Greta and Carson writing the letter, or Abby and Darcy goofing around after a few martinis? Oh, uh, <laughs> the letter writing scene um, was uh, well. I, it was definitely Greta and Carson. Um, uh, writing the letter, but Abby and Darcy who play Greta and Carson have known each other, um, for many years. And I think the feeling of how to like get each other <laughs> and how to like poke at each other and, uh, everything really that, that comes through in their performances. And it definitely came through in that, um, scene, that scene, um, was, shot at the end of a day on the pilot and it we didn't have as much time as we wanted to which always happens and so it was definitely a situation where jamie babbitt who directed the pilot and the next two episodes kind of set up the cameras and it was just like okay like do it and she was yelling <laughs> out ideas and they were doing things and um it was great and i think that sort of sense of fun and immediacy comes through in the scene yeah it reminded me, first of all, it was so, it was perfect. And it also reminded me of things that I've done with my, with 
my friends or people that I've just met, even when you get into a, the situation like that where you're thrown together. It yeah. Was, mm. Yeah. Well, it was, it's also, you know, it's a moment for Carson where she looks at Greta and she's like, this person is courageous and strong in a way that I don't know how to be, but I, but I know that I kind of need to be, which I think is part of why she latches onto her um, at that moment, not knowing that there's a lot of pain and a backstory and a reason why Greta is that way. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, switching gears a little bit. Sure. You have another Amazon prime show premiering on March 3rd mm-hmm. called Daisy Jones and the six. That is correct. Can, can you tell us a little bit about that one? Um, that show, like League, has been a long time in coming. It was delayed for um, COVID. It's based on a book by Taylor Jenkins Reid, which is wonderful and romantic and sort of takes you behind the scenes of one of the greatest albums of all time and a band that came together, recorded this album, generated a lot of rumors and then broke up and nobody knows why um and for me the fun of that show uh one of the fun parts of that show was getting to kind of go on the bus with the band and really be on that journey and on that rise with them but also you know scott newsetter who uh i ran the show with uh and i i think in different ways are both sort of obsessed with um, the music of that time and and getting to really make an album that um, speaks to those albums that we love with an incredible group of musicians has been so much fun. So the show comes out on March 3rd. We're incredibly excited for people to see it and, and nervous all the other things. Yeah, I'm sure it's going to be great. All your work is amazing. <laughs> I don't just say that because we're talking to you. I oh, mean, we, we really do. We love. We suck work. at lying about stuff like that. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a mini series, correct? Yeah, it's a it's a ten episode mini series. So, like, that's it. Uh, well, I mean, never say never. Um, we'll see how the show does, and if people sort of move into the house and um and make something out of it like they have with league um you know maybe there's a a way to continue it but at the moment we're we're not thinking about anything besides just putting the show out yeah i was just wondering if you think like miniseries are better than shows at this point because renewals are like so hard to get anymore yeah i mean there's definitely a part of me that looking at the way that Um, People are using data and metrics, and especially when you're telling a story with female protagonists, people from historically marginalized groups, there's something wonderful about just getting to end a story (laughs) and then not go through that process. But at the same time, you know, there's something amazing about living with characters for three seasons and and essentially having them be part of your family. and uh and ultimately i think they're they're both satisfying to do in different ways so we hear you have another series on the works called nigerian princess that is right i mean that's a a series that i'm producing that ziwe fumado who uh you guys probably know um created and is starring in 
Um, and it's been like so fun to uh, to get to help her um, sort of make her world and figure out um, a version of her scripted uh, sensibility. I really can't wait for um, people to see it. Does it have a release date yet? Or is it still no, just- No, we haven't. Um, we uh, just turned in the second episode and hopefully we'll be able to um, start shooting it sometime uh, this year. So I'll keep you guys nice. posted. Do you have any advice for people trying to break into the industry and how to tell underrepresented stories? Well, first of all, for people trying to break into the industry, I think um, the thing that I would say is like, start to really cultivate your own process. Um, like the industry parts of it are always gonna be hard, whether it's getting a show made, getting it renewed, getting representation, getting somebody to read your pilot, um, you know. Uh, and so I think what you really have to do is, is figure out what your work means in your life and figure out a routine that really supports it. And then you have to be doing that work uh, every day or, or whatever your schedule is, sort of no matter what's going on in your life and um, what's, what's happening um, in the world and what the industry thinks of what you're doing. You know, you have to sort of nurture your own process as an artist first. And then I think in terms of people who are trying to break in, um, you, you know, like really putting yourself into your scripts like when we're reading scripts for staffing, you you read a lot of scripts that you're like, you know what, that's pretty good. And like, that totally feels like a TV show. And then you read one that you're like, oh, this is really weird and specific. And like, <laughs> I don't, you know, this voice feels different and it's somebody just going a little bit deeper and writing from their own personal experience or, you know, something that they want to write about. Um, so that, that difference is, is really big, you know? Um, and, and again, I think that's part of kind of a good process, um, in terms of, uh, telling, um, queer stories, uh, or underrepresented stories. I think, um, you know, there's not a magic answer to that. Uh, it is challenging, um, because, audiences of color and queer audiences, um, as we said earlier, tend to watch um, shows with uh, white straight protagonists. And the same is not true in reverse, which creates a set of dynamics in data and ratings and everything else that essentially I think platforms a lot of the bias that exists in the world into those metrics. Um, uh, unless they're looked at thoughtfully with a lot of context. Um, and the thing that I would say is like, first of all, like do it, it's incredibly important. The second thing I would say is like, have a community. Um, find the people that you wanna work with or that you wanna have drinks with uh, who care about the same things that you care about um, and uh, find a team you know, uh, and ultimately that's the thing that I think really makes it possible. That's true. Not that I know from firsthand experience, but. Well, not the, that, but you know about finding a team because yeah. we all found each other and it was awesome. Yeah, yeah. Like a little team. 
I'm sure it's the same thing for you guys with the podcast, right? It's like you do it partly because there's some joy in doing it together. Oh, that's yeah. absolutely. <laughs> we wouldn't be here. And so there's like, because there's two main reasons. Is One is, you know, putting out, like getting queer media, like information about queer media out there. And then also yeah. our family. So, and those things go hand in hand. So that's awesome and i'm glad you guys are doing and i'm uh thank you for doing what you're doing because it makes our jobs a lot more fun <laughs> yeah we can't we're getting close to talking about a league of their own it's we have be to so get many the warrior episodes. nun first <laughs> <laughs> we're getting there well we appreciate it and then hopefully season two will do even more yeah no, we would, we'll we would love that. Crossing fingers. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure we could figure out hundreds of more questions to ask you because, like, we didn't even touch the surface on A League of Their Own. There's just so much in it. Oh. So much. I can't, like, there's no words. It's just, it's an experience. That's That's all I can say the show is. It really is. Well, that is the nicest thing you could possibly say about it. And it means a lot to me um, that you guys say that and, and you know, that um, the fandom around the show, the different fandoms around the show have really embraced it in that way. You know, that's, that's why we do what we do and it really matters. Absolutely. I love that. Well, that wraps, wraps up our questions for today. Before we sign off, do you have any final words for the listeners at home? Um. I would just say, I mean, I assume there's a lot of queer people uh, in your audience. And it's usually our base audience. Yeah, I figured. Just a bit. Yeah, just just a couple. Yeah. So I guess I would just say um, the same way as the characters in the show by sorting out your lives and finding your people and falling in love. Like there is real heroism in that in a world that isn't necessarily set up for you. And we need each other to make it worth it and to make it fun and and everything. So, you know, I, it's not the easiest time in the world to be a queer person. Um, not the easiest time in our country to be a queer person. So take care of yourselves and take care of each other. That's beautiful. Thank you again for taking the time to talk with us today. We really appreciate it and loved getting to know you better. Oh, thanks a lot. And don't worry, so I'm going to get you that list of books. Okay, I hit a snag, but I'm going to get it. I can't wait. <laughs> to everyone at home listening, make sure to check out A League of Their Own and Daisy Jones and the Six, both streaming on Amazon. Well, the, the latter will be starting March 3rd. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Thank you. Goodbye. And with that, we've been Big Gay Energy. If you like this episode, check out all our other episodes on whatever you're using to listen right now. If you're listening on Apple, we'd really appreciate it if you left us a review, no matter how brief. It helps us get into Apple's algorithm to reach a wider audience. Please feel free to reach out to us. We would love to hear from you about everything and anything. You can find us on all the social medias at Big Gay Energy Pod or email us at BigGayEnergyPod at gmail.com. If you'd like to make friends with other queer media loving people, reach out to us to join our Discord server. If you'd like to support us, check out our merch store or join our Patreon for early access to episodes, exclusive content, and so much more. 
Until next time, stay safe and hydrate for Lesbian Jesus.